Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, the mirage is the message and the noise is the signal. I'm doing okay. Uh, we had a little bit of thunderstorm action that was eh, kind of disappointing, but it's it's better than it was. But I don't know. I think things are so crazy. Just, I mean, I was reading about, remember we talked about a Japanese dude who spent thousands on this wolf suit? Well, mm -hmm. now there's a guy with a collie dog suit that he also, also Japanese, also spent thousands. I wonder if it's the same guy, you know? And it just goes... I mean, Lizzo has been accused of fat shaming her staff and forcing them into sexual humiliation. I mean, who knows if that's true. I love that Lizzo. story. I love that. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's one of my favorite stories. I love when I love when a story comes along that where there's a meme of a guy who has two big red buttons in front of him and he's sweating over which one he's going to press. And the format of the meme is used when uh, self-righteous people find themselves in a conundrum. So it's like, <laughs> so the two big buttons would read like uh, defend the, you know, defend the oppressed workers or defend the, uh, you know, the marginalized community or, or whatever. Um, but I, uh, I saw the Kali thing too. And I, if there isn't a better, representation of what we've called on this show the the arconic co-option of a kind of animist uh uh spirituality i don't think there is one because we love becoming animal on this show like becoming dog becoming wolf becoming bear becoming deer but not like that <laughs> You know, that is really, uh, really well said because it's complicated and it's so strange that it's very hard to, I mean, because there is a problem. We absolutely are involved in animal spirits, the whole totemic dreaming idea. I mean, I, I think that's just absolutely essential. It's, it's been a key feature of many episodes fairly directly. And yet this, there's something deeply wrong about this. And that's saying something given that we have contexts like mascots and the whole furry movement, which is something yet again. I mean, I don't know if, if uh, these, the two, the Collie and the Wolf guys in Japan I don't think that they're uh, affiliated with the furry movement. Exactly. I think they're out of Is there a house. sexual component to it or not? There is, I, there is I know. Furries, it's but. not as far as I know. I think this is just, um, well, I think it's extremely well-funded mental illness is what it is. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way to put it. And also the desire to get attention, um, I don't know. I mean, I really wish that that Freud and, and Jung were still <laughs> alive. I, I think we're missing out. Um, imagine 
William James. That would be so cool. Right. If someone were really, really, you'd need a really great scriptwriter behind, but you'd need someone with James's bearing to come to life and 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 kind of I think that'd be real. And you wouldn't even have to know him mm-hmm. because he would win people over just as he did in his own day. He'd go out to the Lyceums, you know, like a version of the Chautauquas traveling, you know, traveling public broadcasting lectures. Yeah. You know? Man, that would um, be so cool. That'd he so could do cool. that on his own. But so how are you doing? Uh, there's been more big news in your life. Um, so quick recap, and then we'll roll on, I guess. Yeah, we. Uh, I did my orientation and officially signed my contract today. So I uh, will begin setting up my uh, lesson plans and, and getting ready for the school year, which I'm very excited to do. I'll be uh, teaching American literature. Uh, and when they gave me the list of what I'm going to be teaching, I was very excited because we have Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, T.S. Eliot. We've got Grapes of Wrath, The Jungle, Catcher in the Rye, A Raisin in the Sun, Up from Slavery. Uh, lots of very, very interesting books that are sure to lead to lots of interesting discussions and some grammar, which, you know, you and I talked about this off mic Uh but I like your approach to it. I like being a a warrior for grammar, uh, a stickler for grammar, and uh, as per your advice, contrasting that with a uh, with a classroom that is also very uh, creative and fun and uh, lo- not loose but um, generative. Exactly, and I think grammar is a wonderful, wonderfully susceptible to that to new approaches. And I, I find I enjoy my approach a lot. So that's a very strong reading list. I think that's, uh, that's really cool, but important question, connecting back to mascots. What's the school mascot? The Highlander. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, kind of, got- well, that's bit, that's not uncommon, but it's uh-huh. it's odd in Oklahoma. <laughs> a little, yeah, yeah. The Highlander, unless something's changed since I went there, um, it's a muscular dude in a kilt. So, yeah, we're the. Well, you know, I've told you. I think about my um, hallucinogenic spiritual crisis in Hydro, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. way way back when i was like about 18 well that was so magical uh many years later when the internet early in the internet but when the internet was was up i managed to locate a hydro high school wildcats jersey and i i managed to buy it and somewhere along the lines probably connected with the divorce i lost that jersey and i'm really upset about it because it was it was very magical to me i want to share this with you i was in academy sporting goods today uh buying new shoes 
for tomorrow because I'm going to be on my feet a lot. So I got some nice Nike running shoes to wear. Good. And uh, I walked past the women's athletic wear section and Rios wanted to take a look. I'm in the athletic section and I saw this shirt. Can I can I just go get the shirt really quick and show yeah, it to you? Yeah. All right. Hold on. Sounds important. I'm in. Yeah. I'll make sure listeners get a good description because I'm certainly hanging out to see it. Although I'm I can see in my mind this Hydro Oklahoma Hydro High Wildcats jersey and it's interesting because i'm looking at a book one of the books on my shelves and it's the same very strange mix of blue and gray it's a it's a color you don't see very often and you rarely see it uh, associated with sports teams although offset by red which it was i believe and it's so cool. Okay, David is back. Let's see it. I'm back. Thank you for your patience. I So I saw this it, again in the women's section. Somebody had discarded this. Wow. You see the letters? Well, it's USA. That's right. <laughs> yeah, with with a, but it's a big hold it up again and I'll just okay. Okay, we're talking a circular motif of a flag kind of well flag pattern but with an overlay of a really fantastically uh evil uh I don't know if it's really a deer skull. It's many points of deer. It's a pretty ser- it's it's pretty serious. I think it's more a demonic figurative uh antlered creature than something you'd see wandering around oklahoma even it's it's a shirt chris's description of it is fantastic what i will add to it is it's the kind of shirt that you find in a gas station in the desert somewhere it's got that quality to it but it just it emanates so much so much personality and so much energy and it was in the completely wrong place of the store. And it was on sale because nobody wanted it for $3.97 plus my 10% teacher discount. So I got this shirt for $3.50. And I think it's perfect. I'm so pleased with this shirt because you're right. You want to say it's a deer, but what on earth? That's not a deer. What is that? No. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's definitely not a deer. It's not it's an, an entity. Yeah. Oh my god, that's wild. Well, congratulations on that bargain hunting. You won that hunt. Yeah, yeah, I won that one. Um, well, for today, we are going to take a slightly different tack. Last episode, it felt good. It felt good to to get some of that uh, poison out of my system. I've I've been in a much better mood actually since I was able to get all of that out. Uh, but we're going to change tack a little bit. And this show is going to be uh, after uh, we do the, the, uh, let me, let me tell you how I think it's going to go. And then you can correct me. Okay. We're going to do uh, 
we're going to do your band, but most of the show is going to be aphorisms. So are we going to do the imaginative challenge? Yeah. First? Yeah. Oh, okay. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll just jump. So last episode, you asked me to change what well, you challenged me to change it up a bit and substitute for my band. I'm going to take a break a little bit from the music biz and develop video game concepts. That's right. That's so right. That's, that's right. what I've got for this time. And cool. then uh, I have just a really simple aphorism because it's it's funny and it's kind of connected with one of my neighbors who I think has a really interesting way of putting things. And then I do have an imaginative challenge for you. Okay. Sweet. Sweet. So and then, and then start the, with the body of it. Game? Yeah, we'll start with the video game and for the listeners. So the body of it is going to be a much more freeform discussion with you giving more aphorisms and then us kind of talking about a, a sort of an easier conversation than last Well, I, I think it's going to be fun. I mean, I thought of it. I, these are five different phrases, questions, stories to pitch at you because I really just my first thought with all of them is I wonder what David would think of this or how he would respond to it. Cool. You know? And I think there's room for uh, any amount of discussion from something very short and sharp to something meandering and, uh, you know, more maze like. Cool. I'm down. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So speaking of sort of the maze idea, here is my first video game concept. And I call it House Trap. And I'm just suggesting that house would be spelled the German way, H-A-U-S, just for fun. But here's the description. To, you know, this is to the player. You're a professional thief hired to steal an extremely precious artifact from a mysterious, extravagant estate. Visually, think of a Burning Man-style Hearst Castle set inside a Banksy-designed theme park within a Ted Nugent canned hunting reserve. Just getting into the mansion is a challenge, and with each failure of sniper or booby trap destruction, you're doomed to repeat and repeat your progress one virtual death at a learning time. Then, if and when you find your way inside the bizarre house, you discover that each room is a trap and a treat. Something has happened recently in each room. There are many signs if you're alert. Solve the puzzle of what happened in the room, and you get an important clue as to the artifact you're seeking and a key to another room on your search. That's right. You don't know what it is you're trying to steal yet. Reconstructing what recently happened in a room yields new information about the artifact. Very so cool. that's the bones of it. What do you think? That's very cool. When you die in the game, you go back to the beginning of the game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is a genre of game that does that. They are called roguelikes because... Back in the early days of computing, there was a, a dungeon crawler called Rogue, 
and you know very primitive by today's standards but that was the new technique that that game introduced which is that if you if you die you uh you have to start all the way back at the beginning it's been developed now into an entire genre of games including one called Hades which is very interesting it is a top down uh action game where you are the the son of Zeus and you are running through Hades and they use the death mechanic very interestingly where whenever you die you gain a new type of power you still start at the beginning but you're gifted something poseidon will come to you and say hey i noticed that you're having a bit of trouble here here's my triton uh it's got these powers so the death mechanic really works in its favor but i got uh really into roguelikes for a while there because there's something extremely compelling and intense about only having one shot at the game and then having to go back to the beginning. So I like the way that this game feels to me is a roguelike version of Mist. Yes, Mist was on this. my mind. What, you yeah. know, a real oldie. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. was, but but nonetheless, I think it from a storytelling point of view and also kind of just the general art direction context works for me as it did for a lot of people. But I think the storytelling mystery aspect of that is kind of just classical and, and, you know, ancient, you know? Yes, yes. There are missed novelizations, which I think is very interesting because though I've never read them, I would be curious as to how someone would write a book about mist. You'd probably just write the game as if you were playing the game, but you'd put it onto a narrator. But no, I think that's, I think that's a great first go at it. Housetrap. And, you know, I've just realized, and I think actually a video just of this segment would be a beautiful thing to put up on its own, because without intending this in any way, I think we have just performed a model of highly effective and engaging education. I mean, think about it. I know the the challenge, the, the contextual challenge is, I know nothing really about video games at all. I mean, I'm very, very naive, ignorant. And yet I'm curious. And my what knowledge I do have is, is very strange. So the challenge of coming up with something, okay, I, I need to get through that imaginative hurdle to do that. But your response then triggers a, a fantastic possibility of education about video games, but in a way that is really kind of tailored, you know, I, mm-hmm. I can, it's not me just, well, you know, going into getting lost in the whole subject of video games. It's the information, the knowledge, the insights get, you know, really put forward in a very selective way that I think would be, you know, over time would be immensely, immensely effective. And I don't think we think of education that way. Uh, that's really cool. That's a really cool way of of looking at that. And I think that hopefully over the next year, I, I can develop those skills because it's not even just a teaching in a classroom setting. I mean, we're doing a podcast here, but this is the way that you and I talk to each other when we're not recording. And I think it's a cooler way of talking to people 
you know that there was a there was a, a kind of meme for a while about mansplaining. And the idea was that men love to explain things. And if you give them a chance, they'll talk at length about any subject, no matter what they, they know about it. But there's a difference between doing that and genuinely relating information that you find interesting to a friend who can then take that information and put it through their particular creative filter and come out with... It's like putting two really smart Furbies in a room next to each other and having them teach themselves how to talk. It is. Yeah. It is so far from, uh, from explaining in any way. I mean, I think there's, there's something deeply flawed with, uh, with explanations, just Mm -hmm. no matter who's putting them forward. Uh, And it doesn't seem to me to have much to do with education, but I think that, what you were doing has everything to do with education and may be an example of the single most effective technique I can possibly imagine. There are some you know, things that you need to make it happen. Yes. But it was, it was very, very coolly done. And I like the fact that conversational speech is the informing grammar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what gives it shape and and if you trust that it's like trusting your ear musically that's about the right amount of so-called content you know as if the mm-hmm. content could be separated from the, the music uh but no that that was such a uh a counter to the very deformed idea of explanation i like that a lot i like that distinguishing characteristic what is your aphorism for us today? Okay, well, this comes from my neighbor, and there are a couple of them who you're just not sure about, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how many bricks shy of a load are they? You just, it's hard to know. Desert people are, you know, strange. But without any irony or hint at his tonal feeling of saying this he said there's no business like not having any work (laughs) and you know hearing that brought such joy to me and you know i've been thinking so hard about how linguistics and the formal study of language just makes no allowance for the joy the laughter the silliness the well what was just happening with language right then and i don't know how we can ever trust it to deliver any information about language if we miss something that fundamental so i'm glad you enjoyed that i'm glad that's a good one that is a good one that's a good one what is my imaginative challenge for the day? Okay. Well, it boils down to the development of a television series. And you're only going to be provided with the title. But I will give you a little bit of background and say this is mainstream television okay. with a significant budget 
that is trying to really do some difficult things of reach back into America's TV past for a certain kind of familiarity and optimism, even if the generation who grew up on that is passing or already dead. Secondly, it's really got to cross audience demographics. This can't be uh, a super, super narrow demographic because the mainstream expectations are big. And finally, it has to strike a balance in a culture war sense between traditionalism and wokeism. Okay. Okay. The title of the show is Wagon Train to the Moon. Alex, Star Trek. Wagon train to the moon. Yeah. Wasn't there's yeah. wagon train to the stars? Was there a wagon train to the stars? I think that was the original title of Star Trek before they changed it to Star Trek. Was really? wagon train uh, to the well stars. look, I, I could well, I could well and truly believe that. Somehow I just loved wagon train and moon. I think the mm-hmm. stars is a bit, I don't know, hit your wagon to a star. That might be what kind of puts me mm-hmm. off that. But I think there's something kind of humble and right uh, well pioneers certainly but but broken down and a little bit desperate you know we we think of we don't often think of the motivations for the pioneers but i think sometimes it was you know getting away from something getting away from debt getting away from you know who knows and well, there are lots of reasons to be in a wagon train. And mm-hmm. what does a wagon train mean today? I was also thinking about, um, you know, we had the expression bandwagoning. I wonder if we have could have what wagon training would mean today. Mm-hmm. But in any case, so you've got to set out the parameters of the show. Give us an idea of how many, you know, what the cast is. Love it. Love it. Okay. Got it. Gears are already spinning. All right. So that's great. Wagon train to the moon. Uh, so to move into the main body of our conversation, our freewheeling fun palate cleanser. What do you have for me today? Okay. I just thought I'd jump in really quickly with something following up on our idea of the super fist. Because I was thinking about AI, artificial intelligence, and I wondered why we don't call it superficial intelligence. But I just wanted to connect this back to uh, the earlier episode dealing with the superfice. Superficial is a conundrum. In one sense, it enshrines surface, likeness, appearance. Professional food photography is a vivid practical example. Often, if you ate the styled and directed food, you'd get sick or possibly even die. But doesn't the super prefix also suggest a hyper-real aspect? Isn't this precisely the problem of modernity? Not the triumph of image over substance, but the more emphatic and far-reaching triumph of image as substance 
So I just thought I'd throw that in uh, connecting back. Just, just real quick. That reminds me of the difference between symbolic and emblematic that you brought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep prosecuting that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that really was a great challenge. I appreciate the opportunity of introducing that, Mm -hmm. that distinction and I, I think you were absolutely laser on the prairie right about that needing more teasing, more untangling, more stirring, uh, more troubling, you know, in, in, in a good sense. You know, you use that word off, I think, you know, in that way of just taking more direct engagement with it. And we'll get to that, um, perhaps not so directly, but obliquely. but. Um, Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here's my first uh, prompt for you. And this really is, um, you know, a, a, a very direct aphorism. And I think sometimes it's worth challenging ourselves to make direct statements because, you know, they could just be prompts for us. Here it is. Self-knowledge is overrated. It's volatile unverifiable and often possibly delusional does the same hold for self-understanding i would point out first of all understanding having that ing and that that influx gerund quality of of understanding i think that the problem with knowledge as you stated is that it's appeals to solidity open it up to all of the criticisms that you mentioned mm-hmm. i think that when you come to an understanding with a person it doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with them or that you're even happy with the understanding it seems to me to be more compromise oriented. We came to an understanding. He's not going to do that anymore. I'm going to adjust my behavior as well. We're going to meet somewhere in the middle where neither of us is happy, but we can get along. Okay. And I think when, when you're thinking in terms of the self, all the best gurus that I like, at least people like Alan Watts, really do challenge you to move away from self-knowledge into a sense of self-understanding. Self-exploration would be closer, I think, to what someone like Terrence or uh, or Alan would say. I call them by their first names because they're my friends. Yeah, and I, I, I like that. I think they'd appreciate that too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think that it really depends on the individual who's using these terms and what they mean what they mean by these terms but my personal understanding of them is that it is it seems to me to be i i know enough to play ball i understand enough to play ball and i'm trying so hard to not use the word understanding over and over again because <laughs> you know yeah. they always say that like, like that. Don't, use, don't use the word when you're trying to explain the word um a kind of um a middle ground for your own mind, a place to meet yourself and accept 
parts of you that you're less than satisfied with. Uh, and along with, and this is very important for today, I think, acceptance without uh, necessarily condoning or feeling like that's an okay place to stop, right? That we're going to work on it, but I accept where you are now. Acceptance is another fraught word though. So I'll turn it back to you there, but I do, I like, I like the flux nature of understanding versus the uh, dusty tome, uh, 10 commandments style idea of, of self-knowledge. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to listen back to this very, very carefully because it's been very helpful for me. Uh, as I may have mentioned or just floated, the the working title of the memory and consciousness book is Two Writers Were Approaching from Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtowers. And I think that what you've just responded really just melds in there beautifully so i will listen back very carefully i'm, I'm curious in what way well i mean you're really talking about the the relationship of the two writers i mean i'm putting forward a mm -hmm. fundamental premise of yes we have multiple you know many characters many spirit souls but i think there's a fundamental duality that is imposed mm -hmm. on us via consciousness via language you know, the voice in our heads. And that's a fairly basic starting point. But I think that the, the, the establishing of understanding, compromise, acceptance, working, the two writers working together, as opposed to really being in conflict. I mean, that is the basis of, of mental health and, and uh, I think, inspired living. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for that. Okay, here's the second one. Whenever someone says, I didn't see that coming, I ask them, what did you or do you see coming? Where is it coming from? I didn't see you coming. So when somebody says, I didn't see you coming. I didn't see is, it coming. You know that expression? Oh, oh sure, sure, coming. yeah. Right, yeah. right, okay, okay, okay. So when somebody says, I didn't see it coming, the question is then where did it, where, where did it come from? Well, I'll read it again. Whenever someone says, I didn't see that coming, mm -hmm. I ask them, what did you or do you see coming? Where is it coming from? Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Very good. Very good. What do you see coming? Man, this is why your questions are so great, because this is like the thinking about thinking episode we had four or five weeks ago. Um, if you think about where things are coming from on a quantum level, you could get really spooky with it and say that they're coming from inside your own head, right? Um, but <laughs> if, if, if you're talking about, you know, uh, where my mind goes immediately to a kind of quantum magnetism. So 
I will stick with my initial response. They are, in a sense, coming from inside of your own head. In some sense, I think that you're generating the things that come your way. And when you say, I didn't see that coming, I would challenge that. I would question whether you are willfully ignoring something that you might have brought on yourself. Wow. See, this is fantastic because that that's um well, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean to me, one thing which this does is it shows that in apparently very disposable, forgettable, common, ordinary. Uh, expressions, idiomatic phrases, or just they're not even really on the level of, of, of idiom and they're not really on the level of cliche. Exactly. There are a lot of phrases that could that fall into this sort of category. I'd suggest they all contain hidden metaphysics, really profound assumptions about the nature of the universe and how life works. And if you pointed them out to people, they'd go, well, some people would just not know what you were talking about at all. But some people would go, whoa, you know, because I didn't see that coming. Well, of course you didn't see it coming. I mean, what does that really mean? You know, can you see the future? Are you making those sorts of claims? Uh, the notion that the, that something is coming from something else. I mean, so the future is approaching us. That's a weird point of view right there. But frightening. That's very frightening. That's like a train. Yeah. On you. And I think that is um, the best way I could possibly describe the anxiety related to symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder is feeling like there's something's coming and that you are tasked with putting a name to it so that you can adequately prepare for the thing that's coming. You know, oh, well, if I don't do this or that ritual, there's this, th there's a looming Cthulhu coming out of the sea. We've all seen those great paintings of the tentacled beast, right? Like there's something, yeah. something. I do see something coming, but I don't know what it is. And so I'm going to do something that is frankly pretty stupid to attempt to prepare for it, right? To, to try to get my ducks in a row, so to speak. And now I'm thinking of little ducks in a row with the Cthulhu in the background, <laughs> like a, a family of ducks. <laughs> that was just so cool. You know what I saw because of the Oklahoma connection, I transposed the Cthulhu, you know, ocean, sea monster thing into like this really black, but inside multicolored tornado creature, yeah. a yeah. tornado Cthulhu over the. I like the that. Earth. Yeah, I like that. I'm a, I'm a novel that I'm the novel series that I'm working on right now, which I'm almost finished with book two. Uh, has as one of its conceits sentient tornadoes and sci-fi cyberpunk tornado wranglers who use uh, a cyberpunked up version of the Comanche tomahawk 
method for dispersing oh, tornadoes. I, okay, yeah, okay. And you uh, told me something yeah. about that. Yeah, I remember that part. Yeah, and so this Cthulhu type, I have this idea of um, it's very filmic when I imagine it of like a mama tornado, a big F black F5 that can telepathically communicate with the characters. And I picture this deep grumble, like the rock monster from the never ending story that, you know, give me back my, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So anyway, I thought that was a nice little connection. Oh, that sounds, look, I'm sold on that idea. I just, I, I love anything to do with tornadoes, but I think what you've run down sounds really, well, it just sounds very cool. Okay. Uh, we're going to shift gears. This may sound simple, but I think there are multiple layers to it. My late business partner was a highly respected ad industry art director. There were 250 people at his casket in church funeral in 2006 in one of the most historic regional towns in Australia. And yet, I cannot find a single reference to his life or death on Google. However, if I chance to recall a TV commercial from decades ago about a crystal chandelier getting dipped in pancake batter, I can find out within seconds that it was an ad for Palmolive dishwasher detergent. Oh, and think about that word, detergent. Like that one, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that one. I love that's open for for Osborne riffing. That is that's my favorite thing in the world when you play with words like that. detergent. Just thinking about what words like that are doing, because we're not thinking about what they're doing. Now, this is personal to me because I'm. I'm open with my fellow, with my colleagues about what I've been doing, but I've attempted to be a little bit cagey about some of the writing because mainly I don't want my students to get a hold of my books just because it could be a headache. There's, you've read my I understand books. that dilemma. Yeah, I don't want them to, I don't want them to know in the same way that you don't want to let them know that, well, other things about your past, I'll put it. That yeah, way. yeah. Um, so I let it slip because this woman, I was talking this great, this awesome, hilarious black girl. She, uh, I was mentioning to her that I, uh, I've worked with books for a long time that I was during COVID, I was a book editor. And she casually as could be, she says, how many books have you written? And without thinking, I said, seven. And they said, seven? Well, what, what are they? And I said, well, and I'm, I'm uh, 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 backtracking because I've completely just dropped the ball on this. And she's a chatty Kathy. So by the time I go into the room, 
everybody surrounding me now knows that I he's written books and he writes crime fiction. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my God, like I don't. But anyway, during that conversation, which again, I'm fine with the adults knowing that, but I have to be more careful when I'm talking to kids. Somebody, somebody says, and I knew I was going to get this question if ever it was asked, they're like, well, but what are you doing? What, why are you doing this? Right. And I had had a discussion earlier with a guy who was going to become a ninth grade geography teacher. And he, for the past uh, 15 years, he's worked for the oil and gas industry using LIDAR and radar to make really cool maps of uh, underground pipe systems. It was really cool to talk to this guy. And he was making, obviously, really good money doing that. So the question stands for him too. Why are you doing this, right? Why are you doing? And he he said, and it's the simplest way that I can think of it too, is that because we want to, um, because we're, it's an interesting adventure. And if I would go so far, I would say, because it's doing a functional good, especially if you do it well. You and I have talked a lot about teaching and how that old cliche about teaching people not what to think, but how to think. It's really important in 2023 that good people are going into the teaching industry. And I had a lot of good people in my group um, because that's what I think is missing. And that's, I think, what's responsible for a lot of the mess that we're in right now. So how does this relate to your question? When you when you have somebody who think about those two, the dichotomy between those two things, right? An author who's who's well known, who is reviewed. Uh, we're living in a fantasy world, so let's say he's even paid well, right? Versus an English teacher in a small school, you know, in Oklahoma, right? Which one of those two are you going to find on Google? So. From the outside, you would like your your mentor, your friend. Um, to me, there's something kind of cool that he escaped the clutches of Google. Although there would, of course, be value in having some kind of record of that person there. Mm. What I think is really interesting and is a bit more of a downer note is the idea that you can remember the detergent. Well, Google can remember for you. Yes, the, the, the detergent. But I think if we look at it from an oblique angle, it's it's not negative because the answer is right there in the question, right? Somebody who is very impactful and very important to you escaped the Google trap, whereas the detergent commercial is part and parcel of the Google trap, right? It's there and it's prominent because it doesn't really matter, not the other way around. Oh, that was just a beautiful performance of a technique that we have been talking about for quite some time and will continue to. I've got it, it features into one of the tools, but that was just a beautiful performance of inversion and that of seeing rather than being overlooked by the Internet, say, to have escaped that was just a lovely repositioning. And I mean, even if that's not the position one wants to stick with, Dave has just shown that it's helpful 
that you get another perspective. And it literally is like if you take a little, you know, hand-sized globe, you, you turn it around, you see a different side. And that's what that's what it means. And that's how practical and, and fundamental it can be. That was that was really good. Um, we're going to change it up with a little bit of, of kind of storytelling uh, speculation, but I don't want to distract you from Wagon Train on the Moon. So this is a, a, a more tactical question. Oh, I've got Wagon Train on the Moon, by the way. It came out really quick, so we're good. Okay. Okay. Well, this is kind of... It has a science fiction element. What if the mentally ill amongst the homeless today were psychologically damaged time travelers from some tragic future attempt to escape catastrophe? When did they think they were going? I like that question. Mm. Mm. Well, okay, so what's interesting about this, the first thing that I would think about would be what, where the mental illness comes from, and sensory overload is the first thing that comes to mind. So it's assuming a post-apocalyptic dis slash utopia, depending on who you are. If you are well off enough or have been unlucky enough to be enlisted as a time traveler, clearly there's tech. Mm-hmm. Clearly there's tech, but clearly there is some kind of, I've seen these hats coming out, total scam. I don't believe that these work at all, but there are these stylish baseball caps that are being sold by Gary V. Do you know who Gary V is? No. Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's one of these Tony Robbins type guys. Oh, okay. He, want, he wants to own the New York Jets. Uh, he sells these EMF uh, reflective hats. So they look like ball caps, but they reflect EMF radiation. But cons- thinking maybe that's real. Maybe that's real. Maybe this society has not just figured out time travel, but they have figured out, you know, mind condoms for all the waves bouncing around and the ideas that are getting into your head we went accelerated forward into the cyberpunk utopia or dystopia definitely a dystopia on that one and now we've come out the other end so if they were to go back and i love this idea of time travel being an inexact science but when you're working with large scales of time if you're off by a micrometer on your calculations and you end up 20 years on either side of something, you can go completely insane. So they're aiming, they're aiming for, hmm, what would have to be before the invention of cybernetics. So late 19th, early 20th century, still bustling, still overcrowded, still noisy, but without the, I mean, I suppose anywhere up to the late 70s would be okay. But God forbid they miscalculate and you end up in 2023. You're like, you're like a Native American with a smallpox blanket. But 
for information and radio waves, 5G, right? We'll go completely conspiracy on this one. Let's just assume that that's actually really bad for you. And their brains just can't, they can't take it, right? We don't notice it because our babies are born into it and babies cry anyway. So we don't realize that they're crying because they're being psychically tortured. And we don't know about it because we we're like we're like the lobster in a boiling pot or the a frog or or both, which uh, Wallace used the lobster, so I'll go with the lobster. And it's just been turned up slowly, right? Except for these time travelers who are coming back and they're like, I don't have my EMF ball cap. I'm going crazy. That was just so enjoyable. And out of just a fantastic riff there, I do think that you might have identified the title of the episode, Brain Condoms. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was particularly wonderful, but the whole thing was just, uh, that was great. Okay, one one more, I think, will do us. And this kind of is a, a simple scenario. Uh, but I think it kind of wraps up the energy and questions that we've been circulating around. And it also ties back to our larger theme of the power of image and how it forms uh, not just something to view, but worldviews. Here's the line. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw laundry hanging on a line outside. And I think it was mine mm. in rural Australia. And it was more than 10 years ago. What do you make of that? The last, well, when I visited Korea, none of the Airbnbs that we stayed in had dryers. So we had to hang our laundry out. So mine's been a bit, a bit more recent. Now, when people hang their laundry out like that, is it because they can't afford a dryer or is there some practical value to doing that? Well, uh, I, I was thinking, actually, you made me think that that certainly at uh, the time in Africa, I, I kind of overlooked that that's that was uh, not not 10 years ago, it was four, four or five years ago. But no, I think there is something more. I think that, that it depends entirely where in the world you are. Uh, I think that um, I was sort of imagining it in a kind of a small town, rural mm -hmm passing by the highway kind of, of level that I think is, is a very common scene in American movies up to a point. And then it just, it vanishes, you know, and it just hasn't been seen since. But I think you see laundry out, you know, all, you know, all over, over Asia, for instance, and in very urban settings, because people just don't have the wherewithal, the alternative to, to dryers, right. you know, right. so it's right. purely economic but with implications of, of space. But I think that, um, well, 
the Australians, New Zealanders, and I think the Canadians too, to some extent, uh, I think they had a kind of generational, uh, not frugality in a way, it was kind of uh, a celebration of being able to be able to do things for yourself. Right, right, right. And and I would I would add to that the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about this is is the act of planning mm. of not having things instantly. So not having people who don't have money need to plan or you're in a lot of trouble. You have to put your pants out at a certain time right. because if your if your pants are all wet and you have to go to work in 30 minutes, you don't have a a dryer with a high heat cycle that you can toss those things in and cross your fingers that they end up, end up dried. So frugality, sure. Um, also, yeah, a sense of, a sense of, um, well, I feel like a sense of routine. I feel like when you see laundry out, there's, it's, it's, it feels like settling. It feels like it's, it's a sign of life that people are there for quite some time. And, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, old movies, like you said, they used to have the line, even when it would take place in New York City, there'd be lines between all the roofs, yeah, the, the townhouses, right? And, yeah. and, you know, a classic bit is a character falling and clutching onto those lifelines all the way down and some woman with curlers in her hair, another sign of planning, right? Because mm -hmm. there's no flat irons or anything like that. Uh, would you know shake her fist at them but it does definitely to me feel like um, a certain level of trust is necessary for that too you know to to put your clothes out and to just hope that somebody coming by doesn't take them which you know that's a very subtle-minded insight into this because there was a time when that would have been really understood by everyone and it was an issue. And it's in fact a, a trope of many, you know, 1930s depression era set movies, whether they were really filmed then or not, uh, where, you know, hobos are stealing clothes from the laundry line or there's a chase through, you know, there's, there's a lot to do with laundry lines and, and what, is the expression dirty laundry. Mm. I mean, that was one of the most naked expressions of what's really going on in a household, you know, have, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so moved in together. Well, look at the laundry line, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a richness of storytelling capability and possibility there but i think there's really some anthropology that is is just seems very healthy you know and like something that should be brought back because i think there's also a kind of sense of order you know it's like a well-mowed lawn you know because mm -hmm. you're the lawn mowing dad uh but those signs of of social order uh are so important and I, I i can't think of anything more important today when we're so conflicted and polarized and really at each other's throats about the nature of society that we we aren't more on the lookout for what social order in fact does look like you know to me i think of i think of block parties and barbecues I think that's the best way. Where I'm at now 
in in my in-laws house you know one thing that my father-in-law told me was that this is a really good neighborhood because everybody's always watching you know they're watching to make sure that nothing criminal happens to the point that they go to to people who move into the neighborhood they go door to door and tell them that they do this it's the neighborhood watch sign is more of a you know scarecrow than it is a real neighborhood watch thing usually these people yeah. are serious about their neighborhood watch um <laughs> and that's 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 fine that's good that's a piece of it i would say for sure like protecting the the community but dave chappelle had this great movie 10 or 15 years ago that was directed by michelle gondry the guy who did uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind yeah and it was a documentary it was called block party and Dave essentially spent, I don't know, a million bucks on a huge block party in, uh, I want to say he's from, is he it's from Washington? DC, isn't he? DC? Yeah, DC. Yeah. 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 It was a DC block party. He had all these great, uh, like most stuff was, the, it was a concert, block party, food, that kind of thing. I think that, I think people are starting to get that just a little bit. And I'll tell you why. I was, I went to a, a luncheon at the Chamber of Commerce as part of my orientation. And we got to see a bunch of suits, a bunch of talking heads explaining where their budget was going. And some of the budget was going towards fences around schools that they made sure to assure the audience did not look like prison fences, but were fences nonetheless. And also bullpens for people to go into when they go into, so they have to, they go in, they're being monitored. It's, it's safety issues, right? But they were also really proud of how much of their budget went towards creating maker spaces for kids, which maker spaces are places where kids can get acquainted with robotics and technology and different creative artistic things. And so when I see parts of that, I, it's the, it's kind of throwing throwing parties and and meeting people and sort of understanding where everybody is in your local community in terms of in terms of their stories and their business and you know we're so we're so fixated on um, things that just don't matter and I think that <laughs> I think that the the village gossip is rightfully scorned in our entertainment, the busybody, but maybe a little bit of being a busybody is good. I mean, you seem to know the people who you live around and you know a little bit of their business. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying that's good. That's kind of the way it should be. That's a social order to me, but I've talked long enough. I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. No, I'll, that was fascinating. I, I think that, that, uh, it's always good to be reminded about how complex the social level truly is. And I think that's helpful for me because I tend to value the interior psychological world and then the cosmological, if you know, or, or certainly the, the, including the non-human, the social seems to me to be so much the focus of our 
of our presentism, you know, mm-hmm. and it's related to our notion of presentism because they go hand in hand. Uh, but you really made a very strong case for what distinguishes genuine community from virtual community. And the fact that that I think the word community, because it's very important to lost explorers, it's something we put a high value on. And I think you made a beautiful case for what community means in a neighborhood physical sense. the term is often used really misleadingly. And I think there's a real problem with it because, um, I mean, I don't want to, the X community is, you know, we can have that for that formula in social media all the time in the media. And it for starters, it exaggerates the number of people. It makes it look like, well, you know, it, no, it also makes them like there's like they go to meetings together, you know, and it's really like they're all, friend, you know, they're hanging out, they're living together. No, no, it's not like that at all. It's completely rhetorically deformed and misleading. And so it's really important to break away from that and see that for what it's not, because you put forward a very positive and dimensional uh description of of what it really means without mm-hmm. exaggerating it in any way i mean there wasn't some sort i don't think there was like an uh well any denial of the problems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and and this goes back i think that one of the the issues then of our time is that although the focus seems to be on the social level it isn't truly the social level is more complex. It's now, you know, there's a virtual aspect to it. That's where the focus is on. The technologically mediated social village. Totally, totally. And the technologically mediated social village is based theoretically around people who all agree with each other and people who all practice kindness and togetherness, which is really code for these people say the correct things at all times what if a good community is just a group of people who live close to each other and who who get along about the same as siblings do they fight without killing each other how about that right i can't stand great expression i I can't stand this neighbor they uh, they play uh, uh, mariachi music at 11 p.m. on weeknights. I might go insane if they don't stop. There's this great show. It's called This Fool. It's a comedy that's based in Los Angeles, and it's reformed cholos who work at a um, like a, a. It's called Hugs Not Thugs. It's a rehabilitation center for for thugs. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, and there's this great episode of it where. Um, there's this old Mexican man who gets a, a, a fighting rooster and the rooster is keeping the whole neighborhood up at night and it brings black and Mexican people together. There's a lot of really good racial commentary in the episode, which you can do on television as long as white people aren't involved. Um, 
so there's really frank discussions of race in the episode, but it ultimately brings people, they're all united against this rooster, right? And when they finally convince this old man who's very macho, machismo, he's going to put the rooster down himself. The main character who has claimed not to care about this conflict for the whole episode breaks down in tears, grabs the rooster and says, please, this rooster is all I have. And so everybody says, okay, fine. So people put in earplugs and throughout the course of the episode, you learn so much about these characters in 22 minutes. It's really masterfully done that uh, to me, that episode represents what a community is where everybody commiserates about how much they hate that rooster, but he's our neighbor. What are we going to do about it? Right. This This is part of living in, you know, now most people I know probably would have killed the rooster, but, um, but that to me, without any sort of boring appeals to sentimentality, really showed you what a community looks like. And it's interesting. I think that, you know, if you, if you allow for some variations here. I think there's a deep sense of the mechanics of that that applies around the world or has. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, I think that that is uh, a very good description of, of what a community is at core, you know, and even maybe a community that was on the move, you know, mm-hmm. not settled, pre-settlement. Uh, and that, that sense of, of, interpersonal dynamics and harmonics that somehow get worked out in a way and fighting without killing each other, you know, that's, that's a pretty good goal. But on the other hand, you know, when you think about the sibling thing, mm-hmm. and I know you're with me on this, I've, I've, you know, told stories about my stepbrother. I mean, we just wailed on each other and there was all the intention in the world in doing harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there would have been, and there was tremendous regret and just feeling terrible when something really, you know, did get, but on the other hand, ha ha ha, ha you mm-hmm. know, it was. So it's, it takes a really finely calibrated community sense of where to draw the line totally and i think that that is a way of of just imagine like a group of people drawing together creating some organic um dynamic system of shapes we've lost the ability to do that yeah yeah because any offense is is excommunicado right yeah that's that's the problem it's it's drawing lines without the explicit intention of ostracizing people, you know? I mean, it's not that this is new to 2023. It's all, it's in human nature to do that. But the, the balance of it has certainly skewed, I think, towards the, you know, if you commit an offense, you're, you're out. And where's the line? Nobody really knows. The line is whenever we're bored and we need something to do that's when you get kicked out. So with you and your brother, 
the way that community would function. Hopefully there'd be something resembling a council of elders that would get together and say, look, you guys have to can yeah. you buy some gloves at least. You're hitting each other with your bare fists. Let's, how about that? Or elders, rocks. Or rocks. The elders say, look, fight. Fight. Wear these when you fight and give you guys the headsets and the and the gloves and say, now go to town. Now it's fine. Just imagine. I mean, that's a real micro, micro, microcosm. But just imagine if that philosophy, that approach, that practice was just nurtured and blown up to say, even just one city, you know, that kind of leadership, that kind of restraint, that kind of balance, that kind of practicality from an adult leadership point of view, I'd suggest that that in a nutshell is the whole problem right there. And I think that I'm not saying that that's not a a huge problem because I think sociologically it is an enormous problem. The person who is the one person and the emblem person in your scenario who's saying, you know, put the gloves on, that elder figure, whatever. That is the emblem of social reason and leadership. And, you know, because it takes the emblematic personality to do that. It it just can't be an assigned position, an elected position, a job. That's not what this is about. No, it's got to come at a different level. A little bit of an offshoot, but you just had me thinking with your riff about how there aren't enough people like that. I'm picturing an entire job that's devoted to monitoring online communities and basically going to people and saying, hey, look, we've noticed that you've talked shit five times this week. You know the rules. When you hit five, you have to fight. So who is it? Like you've been going after this guy. You've been in his comment section telling him that he sucks and fuck him and all this kind of stuff. It's like, you got you guys have to fight now. So go go get it out of your system or something. And uh, <laughs> just putting some kind of skin in the game in terms of how much you're allowed to say on the internet, just in general. Think about it. Maybe this is a better idea, right? Um, if it's a diffuse community and you can't fight the person, then there's like a, a representative fighter who comes out to your house and is like, you've you've talked shit five times. So now, <laughs> and I'm talking like, like a real, like he's not going to kill you. He's not going to kill you, but he's kind of an MMA dude, right? And so- it's like i'm here i'm a representative from the community and the person could say anything they wanted they could say but i mean like but this guy was in the the representative could say oh we we're monitoring the person who you're speaking about he's at three he's got two more and then we'll be paying him a visit too but you want to do this in the backyard the front yard you can't do it in the house but you know where where are we going to do this thing 
God, you know, that idea took, went from, you know, the starting point of, of we, our example of kind of the reasonable elder in the community. Then it moved into the internet sort of tech world and became this really creepy surveillance, you know, right. Uh, right. The central scrutinizer, you know, yeah, yeah, very yeah. forward. And then you manage to flip it around from this really kind of insidious paranoia thing to what really sounds like a completely wonderfully wacky reality TV show. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you it's a it's a rumble in in the neighborhood, you know. Dude, wouldn't that be a great reality show? To it would be like you 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 find shit talkers online and you go to them under the pretense that you're shooting a documentary about internet trolls right and you're like you're in a to- and you're interviewing them and stuff like that and you find someone who they've you know harassed online but you make sure you 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 make it so that the person who they've harassed is actually 64250 cut ready to go and you're like all right so now we've we've kind of like to catch a predator <laughs> in its own way it's like well we we have jason here now would you like to to talk to and just people would get such a kick out of watching these troll people being confronted by the frightening people they harass online you could do it with women too you know what a crowd pleaser that would be if there was like this misogynist dude who was commenting on uh you know like oh you're you know fuck you you're ugly all this kind of, and it turns out that woman's like a boxer and they say well we have her here now <laughs> call it call it uh say it to my face right yeah that, that's the show oh, call me hollywood look, you know and i think the people would would be so in love with that idea so in need <clears throat> of it that that they that you could even just do setups and just do you know uh, it would be great. To, I mean, I think you could do reality completely unscripted, but if you just filled in the people, you know, in, mm-hmm. people just want to see that scenario. I think, right, I think right. They really do. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of scenarios, are we going to go on a wagon train to the moon? We are. All right. So the concept for wagon train to the moon is that the moon has run off and put the Earth's gravitational orbit in danger, right? Because the moon plays a very fundamental role. So the Earth is in danger, and I'd have to work out the physics of this, but in this conception, it's getting closer and closer to the sun, right? It's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. So they have to hunt down the moon. The moon has taken off. Because in this scenario, the moon is actually an alien uh, monitoring device that's been placed around the Earth. Um, I love it. So to your challenge, excuse me, to make it appealing to mass, you know, the NBC audience, right? I really feel like the major themes of this are um, idealism and desperation and the play between those two things and how those two particular themes bring certain types of people together. So the first, the captain of this ship that's hunting down the moon is completely gung-ho. He speaks in platitudes. He represents everything about America. He is black. 
he is gay, and he is completely empty. And so when we see him in his private moments, he is just sort of staring out the window, and he's wondering if all of the nonsense that he's been spouting really means anything at all, right? Is it really important to save the moon for America? Another character that we have is an Asian woman. She's a pole vaulter, and she's also had several failed restaurants. And so what she's representing is somebody who's looking for some kind of purpose and nothing that she does has worked out for her up to this point, but she's convinced that saving the moon is the way to do it. Then, and this is where you hook middle America, you have the workers. So the workers have good Christian values. Uh, they, they have families. They are salt of the earth type people who work in the engine room or what have you. They're mechanically minded, they get it, but they have no functional idea of how to find the moon at all. They're completely lost without some kind of guidance. And that could come into, I feel like that's where we would get <clears throat> a lot of the soap opera style drama on this on this spaceship of, you know, solid salt of the earth families, but maybe someone's husband and someone's wife are looking at each other kind of, and we have to keep this community together. Or we'll never find the moon and humanity's doomed, but our primal jealousies and instincts get in the way. Finally. Uh, in terms of characters, not finally for the whole setup, but I want to have a Hispanic conspiracy theorist who's out to prove that the moon was never real to begin with. Um, it's always been a hologram and that this whole idea that the earth is going to go into the sun is completely made up. So the show would combine themes of uh, exploration, hard work, identity, purpose, sex, infidelity, betrayal, and it would have a healthy dose of action because, and I love this idea, our enemy in this show is the Chinese, but they are also trying to save the moon. So we as countries are fighting each other sort of for the honor of saving the world, which I think is a great, you know, instead of working together to get the moon. Yeah. Like, oh, no, fuck them. We're, we're rescuing the moon. Fuck them. Yeah. So okay. That's uh, that's wagon train to the moon. Wow. I really, really uh loved your your pitch for it i think there were some really good things there particularly that last point but uh now i just from the get-go i thought you were inventing some characters that are wow i mean just wonderfully ambitious uh in the right way and very contentious and i think mm -hmm. they're fantastic to play the wagon train leader. I think an actor would really enjoy that. And yet that would be condemned widely and would be very difficult to get into production. And mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. I think, I think I'm thinking in terms, I agree with you from the type of people who we typically associate with, but you know, Taylor Sheridan got a billion dollar 360 deal to make whatever he wanted and Yellowstone is the biggest show in America right now and I really think middle America would appreciate the complexifying of this character who ostensibly checks off all the boxes that you're supposed to check off mm -hmm. I think a lot of middle America would go see see they're just people they're just people like us 
not in a you know weird way but i think they would appreciate that and i think overall it would do some good because if i have one critique of um i call it checkbox entertainment right now it's that you're not helping race relations gender relations uh you know different sexuality relations by turning people into cardboard cutouts that's not helping right we need a little bit more complexity i think well indeed we do and i think that's a really interesting uh kind of arrow in the dark about discussion topics coming up because it ties back into uh, a question that's going to be very important to you as you start teaching and I start teaching too at the end of the month about the nature of education about the nature of uh, instilling ideas uh, you know Hein the, the German poet he uh, he wrote once he asked his coachman where what are ideas what do ideas mean to you? And his coachman said back, ideas, they're what they put in your head. And I think a lot of people do sort of, you know, think about uh, ideas in that way. But the nature of education, but also I've been thinking a lot about the exposure to images, the exposure to advertising. Uh how is it really working, you know? And I think that is a way of going back to, and picking up some of the uh, the interesting threads that we got going um, regarding imagery for next time. I think there's totally. some really interesting things there. Yeah, I'll make that note there. I think that's great. Well, I'm glad you liked that. Do you have tools and tips for us? Or I do, I do. And um, uh, before I get to the tool, I've got sort of a, two tools, I guess. But I, another pitch for this idea and technique of inversion. I had this, I was thinking of this even before David went to that beautiful, beautiful demonstration. But think about inversion in this case in terms of definitions and better understanding of words and concepts. To some extent, you know, in terms of synonym, antonym sort of therapy. But consider the word anxiety. Now, when I do that in a workshop, the inversion of that, when I ask people, what's the inversion of anxiety? Oftentimes, confidence gets mentioned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then I ask them to think about that. I say, is it, first of all, confidence or, or is it inattention? Isn't it the case that if you're not anxious about something, you might not be thinking about it at all, you know? And I think that's a good example of where inversion helps us gain a little bit more understanding. There are situations where we meet where the inversion of anxiety is confidence, but that's not the overarching rubric that is the most helpful. Oftentimes, it's it's being able to not think about something. It's the freedom of ignorance and not having to pay attention, not being alert to it. Okay, but here's the real tool. And I think, I don't know if this expression has come up on the show before, but I, I thought of it again. Wedding tackle. It has. Now, 
I, I, I just think that's a wonderful expression, wonderful colloquial expression. And it made me think that we kind of touched on this earlier, having fun with language, you know, the unnecessary fun aspects of language is the key problem for linguistics. And I would suggest psychology. We just don't have a good paradigm of why. You start to, you immediately, the explanations always presume an acceptance of the terms, you know? It's like, no, well, wait a minute. So we can feel happy. Well, no, that's what we said it was fun. Why do we need that? Why is it so, um, and why these means of, of it being fun? Why have certain things survived down the years? So my, my suggestion is make an effort to have a little bit more fun with language this week. Say some things that are, you know, I was watching an old Twilight Zone the other night and I heard this line, that's uh, harder to do than pouring boiling butter in a wild cat's ear. I mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah, where's I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why I have so much fun talking to you because you do have fun with language. And I don't know why so many people consider language to simply be a means of expressing like it's it's really not much better than ugh and uh, like it's grunting basically it's fancy grunting and it um, is yeah, it is. Yeah. It's very disturbing. And when I do my workshops, <laughs> and certainly I, when I've started classes, we're not allowing anyone to speak. That they have to act out everything. Um, it's it's very confrontational for certain people, and it's often the people who are really struggling with with any degree of articulation. And that's a beautiful fit with the notions of articulation because, you know. Articulation in terms of language is a very clear meaning, but think about it, an articulated skeleton, very physical, very, you know, it's beautifully physical and structural, you know, and I think articulate is a great word, great word. Um, okay, here's my tip. This has a little bit more. Uh, I had a dream and this isn't the dream I'm going to mention, but the tip comes from the dream. Very realistic dream where I had entered a, a writing workshop uh, with a, a distinguished, taller, bigger, I kind of got the feeling you know, relatively famous, but not, you know, workshop leader who was dressing down this uh, woman who... I'd gone to college with, but she had stayed young forever. Okay. And he recited, he was reading some her, her piece, you know, a paragraph and, and criticizing it. And I took issue with, with five words that he was attacking. And I did that because I visually implanted one image from from the dream she was wearing a kind of old-fashioned beige silk long sleeve with sort of a frill at the cuff but there were these five buttons which didn't really have any purpose going up 
the sleeve and I printed on those. And I think for people who are trying to remember their dreams more effectively, this is my tip. That project often fails because of the hegemony of plot. People mm -hmm. are trying to keep the sequence together and they, they lose sight of, of more fundamental things. Focus instead on one key image. This is the emblematic thinking. It'll help you stimulate memory of the dream and, and more solid recall. But it's also a great way to enrich the sense of distinction between emblem and symbol. Symbols represent one or a very limited number of conceptual psychological associations, whereby the experience of a symbol is determined by previous experience and usually a great deal of direct and indirect cultural training. By contrast, an emblem means itself. It has some kind of pure presence validity, independent of association, with a remarkable capacity for stimulating associative ripples and interconnections, usually of a much more elusive, intricate, and harmonic kind than symbols do. I hope that is the beginning of a little bit more help in fleshing out uh, the difference between emblem and symbol. It's not going to stop. It really needs to uh, be looked at from many, many different angles. It's a complex hologram, but that's a start. But the tip boils down to Try to not, and I think this is an interesting way of experiencing art generally, try to clear your mind of the art, save for one emblematic interaction, one key image, you know, it just see what happens. Mm -hmm rather than trying to suck it all in and hold it all together, you know? That's... Yeah. yeah. That sounds difficult. I like that. That's great. Okay. Um, the first dream was just plain awkward. It found me back with a college friend who I shared uh, a room with at one point. And this was later in some other part of the world, sort of like Budapest or something. But it was a terribly cliched repeat of a probably apocryphal moment between uh Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, in a men's room. And I think Hemingway wrote is responsible for the story of saying that Fitzgerald was in a panic about the size of his penis. And Hemingway told him it was okay. <laughs> 
Okay, I don't know. I mean, that's a very famous story. It's getting lost in American literature. Hayes is uh, so much of the mythology of America is just fading away. But in this dream, this is this is kind of what was was happening. But it's Hemingway, whether it was Hemingway saying this to Fitzgerald or the other way around, the idea was that now, look, you got nothing to worry. This is fine. You, you're just what are you talking about? This is comp- no. Well, that was not the situation when Pete showed me his. It was not. It was very disturbing. It was not okay. It was not okay. It was kind of unbelievable. Um, and looked like it might have been achieved through some unfortunate self-surgery. I don't know. But it was not something I felt comp- comfortable sort of seeing at all. So I took that dream. And then I had the dream about my, this uh, kind of girlfriend from college and her buttons on her sleeve and that. And then I moved into an example of what I call alternative life dreams. I'm sure you've had them at some, this is a very, very select yes. uh, or defined genre of dreams where you, the, the takeout is you, you have channeled another person's life or you truly have seen the extension of, a, you know, a possible future. But there's nothing usually surreal about them. There is a, a consistency that is really, really integrated and intense. And usually no clear sense of why. But in this other life, I was the publicist for a very major country music star. No longer young, but not you know, in the Willie Nelson sort of category, but a curious figure, not really based on anyone I can think of, eccentric and known to be so through Nashville, Hollywood, ever diffident, very grumpy, but almost preternaturally honest, so that his whole aura either stood out against the backdrop of other people or seem to slightly recede as if into another dimension. That was the only sort of surreal aspect of it, but it was very, very odd. Um, The diffidence, the grumpiness, but also this just total honesty. Mm. And the the honesty is what was making him sort of blink in and out of the dream. Or yeah, that was fade. the that was the characteristic that was was kind of otherworldly, so to speak, or or completely not in keeping with normal people. Yeah, mm, interesting, interesting. Well, in the I'm going to have to think about that one because if it's a an alternate life dream it really is interesting that that the dream wanted to focus on that on that honesty i'm gonna sit with that for a second yeah i don't have a clear uh you know take on it at all either i mean it's uh I think honesty yeah. is something we 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 so often either blow up too big 
certainly with other people, but also I think with honesty with ourselves. Or we we just kind of cruise around it, through it, take it totally for granted and figure, uh, well, we may not know, you know, what other, you know, if people are, are uh, it, it seems to be very related to what were uh, the, the transactional nature of relationships rather than it being just a fundamental default mode uh, of right, behavior. right, right. Okay, well, that's pretty clear then in that case. Yeah, that the way you put it makes a lot of sense to me in that respect, that that is, that would be what, that's a little depressing. <laughs> but oh yeah i think you know i think it 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 kind of is i mean it really see this is another reason why when i've talked about you know the memory and consciousness uh thinking for the book embracing to my surprise ethics and morals i really didn't set out to i mean i'm not focusing on that it's it's but it's something i feel the need to address and I think in the same way, this, this question of, of the very fundamental question of, of honesty uh, and what that implies, what's involved in the delivery of that. I mean, that is a huge, huge topic. And when you think about it, um, I suppose ethics and morals would be the, the fields that would embrace that. There's not much really that's said. And I, 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 from this, I started thinking about, well, where do you really learn about right and wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, really. Right. right. And it seems if you combine that with your, your tool of inversion with regard to anxiety and its opposite being inattention, it seems interesting that a lot, that the honesty is drawing attention to itself. And so there might be a link there between honesty and anxiety and which might have a key to, to your, your question slash assertion of morals and ethics being, being pushed out. And that is perhaps that honesty does bring with it the ability to allow you to stand out within the dream world or the waking world, which is just another type of dream in its own way. And uh, to bring with it a lot of a lot of frightening potential consequences, maybe honesty is very anxiety-inducing, dangerous, dangerous. That was fascinating. I think there's a that this is again something I'm going to listen back to really, really closely too, because I think you you've said something that's very helpful to me in my thinking. Um, because it, well, it just it, it just connects in so many ways with this two rider doubleness duality in the human mind because of language and the needing to be able to converse with ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, no, that was that was really terrific. I, I, I learned a lot of cool stuff and I I laughed. I had a couple of really good. I mean, oh my god! You, it was a good palate cleanser. I think that was a good yeah. palate cleanser episode for sure. But uh, on that note, thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks everyone. Take care. All right. Why is this always?